This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, March the 9th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Microsoft Ability Summit is taking place. Stephen Scott is going to recap some of the notable happenings. And Don Dickinson will tap into two articles from the McLean's Magazine Reading Show, including a discussion of the Bay de Nord oil mega project in Newfoundland and Labrador and some of the waves that's causing. But first, here is the regional news update. In fact, you should pay attention to these first two regional news stories because they'll at least uh, lay a little bit of context heading into that Bay du Nord story out of Newfoundland. But beginning in British Columbia, a new study based on three BC coal mines says the economic benefits used to justify their approval during the environmental review process were significantly overstated. Simon Fraser, University Professor Rosemary Collard, co-author of the report. Professor Collard describes how that overestimation can erode public trust. It's like, okay, you can have access to the coal that is owned by the government of British Columbia. You can use these lands that are crown lands. And in exchange, you're going to provide jobs and tax revenue and all of this. And our study shows that those impact, those benefits are not being delivered on. So the social contract is, is frayed. The report concluded that the three mines reached only 59% of their projected employment from 1999 to 2019. Over to the prairies. Rural municipalities of Alberta says the total of unpaid taxes from the oil patch keeps rising despite the industry's boom. The group says energy companies owe towns and villages in which they operate a total of $268 million. The rate of non-payment is increasing. Paul McLaughlin, president of the group, says $53 million was left unpaid last year. McLaughlin notes the problem is occurring at a time of record profits in the industry. Over to Ontario, where some cities and police services across the province are banning TikTok from work and government-owned devices following the federal government's lead. Niagara Regional Police in the city of Hamilton confirmed their official TikTok counts are still operational, but employees have been banned from using the app on work devices. Go figure that logic. Waterloo and London have also implemented bans. And finally, in Atlantic Canada, not stealing any of Brock Richardson's thunder with the sports chat, but Nova Scotia has legislation, has new legislation governing boxing, mixed martial arts, and kickboxing. The Province Combat Sports Authority Act was proclaimed law yesterday. Culture Minister Pat Dunn says the new law is aimed at ensuring that professional and amateur combat sports are safe and accountable. The new regulations also designate sanctioned bodies for amateur combat sports like boxing, judo, karate, taekwondo and wrestling that's your look at the regional news let's bring in brock richardson for a sports chat okie dokie brock lots to get to here you want to start with an update from the wheelchair curling world championships yes and it is a positive one yesterday when i left you i told you that the uh, team of four was uh, five and one. They uh, had two more wins yesterday uh, by significant margins, and they are now seven and one. And the mixed doubles team is still undefeated. Both teams have qualified for the playoffs, which will commence this weekend. So lots of good things going on in um, para wheelchair curling. And the one thing, Dave, I forgot to mention to you yesterday uh, was that TSN has been updating through parts of their broadcast the scores that have been taking place so uh kudos to tsn and and sort of piggybacking on on uh conventional curling and going into the wheelchair world i i like when they do that i was very happy to see and they keep updating the scores throughout the draws that are three during the day when it's the briar 
in London. So yeah. good on TSN. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, curling fever is all over the airwaves at TSN, including the Briar. And Brock, you've been tasked with trying to inform me more about the curling world. So looking ahead at the Briar to some games uh, today, you wanted to give a couple shout outs. Yes, so uh, yesterday's game uh, between Kevin Cooey and Matt Dunstone was a really good game. It was a um, game that saw Matt Dunstone defeat Kevin Cooey 9-5. to uh, This was a really, really good game for Matt Dunstone. It, funny enough, Dave, I've seen this as I watch it throughout the week. I've seen there be challenges with stones. I've seen there be challenges with ice. Uh, Kevin Cooey really had some challenges um, reading the ice last night, which doesn't seem to be normal for him. Uh, he did. He also seemed to have a stone that, that didn't do what he expected to do. And the thing for people that may not necessarily know curling is during the round robin, you do not have choice of stones. So whatever sheet you're playing on, you have to deal with whatever stones, whether one carves more, whether one curls, whatever. You have to deal with the stone. And so yesterday we saw Kevin Cooey really have some trouble with this. And uh, yeah, he just didn't adjust in, in that either. So uh, we'll see how he bounces back. But he's still in good shape, only having uh, one loss on his side of the pool. W so. When do the playdowns start? Tomorrow? Uh, there's a tiebreaker potential tomorrow morning and then uh yes because tomorrow's friday yeah so there's a tiebreaker potential at 9 a.m if if uh, teams have tie tied records and then the playdowns begin tomorrow at 2 p.m eastern and then 7 p.m uh as well i can sort of explain the playdowns. no 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 uh, it, 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 tomorrow it, if yeah. you want no, but... no 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 i just i just wanted to know when they started because the playdowns are when like the when the rubber hits the road or the uh the grant or the granite hits the ice as it were uh <laughs> uh brock you said it's in london you're out, you're out there in the kw neck of the woods you gonna go this weekend you know what i'm not and the reason i'm not going is because there was only seats that were available on the ground of the uh play service and so when you watch a curling event you want to be higher up because being on the ground uh when it's 180 foot sheet is very challenging whether you have 2020 vision or you don't yeah and i don't have 2020 <laughs> vision so no i'm not i'm not taking it and i did i did take it in a couple of years ago in kingston and really enjoyed it but i found when four sheets were in play it was a bit of a challenge for uh someone yeah. with my eye condition to sort of follow and and do well so it's, it's i'll listen to the dulcet tones of vic router and company. yeah it's, it, it's no a problem. it's a sports fan's dilemma right especially if you're legally blind or, or, or low vision like you and i because you like being there you like being in the arena you like being in the place you like being amongst the fans but it's not as good as watching on tv because it's harder to follow because of your eyesight yeah exactly and it's such a such a big difference when you're higher up uh in the stadium than lower on the ground and it's you know i want to get something out of it uh and i did when i was in kingston and i just don't feel i would yeah. for the money it would cost me for london so yeah absolutely all right brock let's move over to the toronto raptors since you and i heaped praise on them last week they have the dave and brock stink all over them and they've been pretty much terrible uh since then losing four or five they lose another one to the la clippers last night but not so much the story of the game as the loss 108 to 100 but it's once again the toronto raptors beefing with the referees the toronto raptors versus the referees this time fred van vliet taking shots at the officials Yes, uh, Fred Van Vliet called out lead official yesterday, uh, Ben Taylor. I will remove the expletives and just tell Please. you that he thought he thought that it was a crappy game called, uh, officiated. He got another technical. Um, I, I, you know, I struggle, Dave, because I think you're only going to make it worse for yourself when you admit that you're okay taking a fine. There's no doubt that he's going to take a fine with the amount of expletives that were put put in yesterday's um, post-game uh, press conference. When I woke up this morning, my, my phone just blew up with notifications of, you know, Fred Van Vliet doing what he did. I, I'm, I struggle because it's like, if you have a issue, do you let it run up the ladder? Do you let Nick Nurse, who, and I love Nick Nurse, Dave, 
My problem with Nick Nurse is he always looks aghast every single call against the Toronto Raptors. It's always like, my guy didn't do, like, always, always, every single time. It's like, really? At some point, we have to foul. And so do we need that aghast look on our face all the time? I'm not so sure. I, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the fact that Fred VanVleet was okay, you know, getting a fine and doing that. I just think there's better ways you can approach this because at the end of all this Dave you are going to be officiated by this official again and you're only going to put a target on your back by doing that yeah it can go one of two ways sometimes you will hear about working the referees that by by really calling them out you might a like you say anger them or b they might think the microscope's a little closer on the calls they're making so it can go one of two ways but i but i'm inclined to agree with your position which is you've put a target on yourself and now you've ticked this referee off uh brock you've been watching a lot of sports these last couple days you've been watching a lot Mm -hmm. of sports generally speaking uh yesterday on this show there was a lot of conversation about international women's day and there was quite a bit of international women's day talk on the sports networks as well and you had some observations what was your observation so first of all i want to put out there i love international women's day i think we should all give respect to the women out there that do great work i love it and i think it's wonderful where i have the challenges with this is i saw two or three broadcasts yesterday of different things who said we are making history and having an all women's broadcast I think that is cool. I think that is necessary. I think it's a good thing. However, I'm going to relate this in this way. That's like going to get flowers for your wife on Valentine's Day because that's what it says we should do. To me, if we're going to make a statement and we're going to make it, you know, do what we do, we need to have women at the forefront in other days in addition to National Women's Day. I think... To make more of the statement, you need to have them shown more often leading the broadcast versus saying, this is the day, so this is what we should do. Do I think they should do it on the day? Yes. I just think there should be some other situations where they highlight it when it's not the appropriate time to do so. That's just my take on it. Yeah, this is somewhere where the Canadian sports networks are way behind the American counterparts. Uh, I'm only going to mention a couple here, but there are a few that deserve some love. But uh, Beth Moens for ESPN, as well as Doris Burke for ESPN, are both lead announcers on major, major NBA, college, and football broadcasts in the United States. And that's something that, in Canada's case, we do it once a year. In the United States, they do it every day, every week on networks like ESPN and CBS Sports. So that uh, point is well taken, Brock, that uh, it feels a little bit like tokenism on March the 8th. And that's probably how we would feel on December the 3rd if they brought you and I in to call a a Raptors game and said, oh, it's International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Here's Brock and Dave. uh, But don't mind that we're not seeing them the other 364 days a year. Um, So, yeah, your your, your point is taken. Your point is taken. Uh, Brock, let's finish in the world of hockey. Hockey, the National Hockey League. Let's get a bit of a roundup here. Speaking of Dave Stink, I offered some praise to the Ottawa Senators a week ago, and it's been a nonstop disaster ever since, including some injury trouble in net. Yes. Uh, Cam Talbot is going to be out for uh, three weeks. To Yikes. me, this Yikes. puts a real damper on what Ottawa hopes to do or had hoped to do. I think if they were going to get in, they were going to squeak into the wild card. I think this is going to be real tough when your number one goaltender is out for this length of time. I think Ottawa's story has been great. But, you know, you need goaltending. That's where it starts and stops. If the person isn't stopping the puck, doesn't matter how many goals you score. Welcome to my cliche moment here. Uh, But... But it, it, I just think that this is really going to put a, a damper on what has been a really good story of the Ottawa Senators over the last month, month and a half. I just think it's going to end where they're not going to make the playoffs. And everyone's going to say, you know, yeah, we had a good year and that's all well and good. But I, I was really hoping to see Ottawa at least make a run at this. And they were doing that. And I think now with this injury, they're they're, they're pretty much 
out of well, it. Well, maybe, maybe you've put the opposite Dave Stink on them now by saying they're not going to do well. Maybe they'll show us wrong starting in Seattle tonight. Speaking of games tonight, Brock, there's a couple really compelling ones. You and I probably talk too much about the Edmonton Oilers, but they are playing the Boston Bruins tonight, which is a real marquee matchup. Yes, it is. And uh, sorry for anybody in Edmonton that, that or anybody other than Edmonton that feels like we talk about them too much. This is a uh, marquee matchup. You see uh, Boston, who just seems to be clicking on every way in, in the game. And, and Edmonton, you know, Edmonton does Edmonton things. Connor McDavid does Connor McDavid things. Sometimes we see really good things out of Edmonton. Sometimes we don't. This is one of those games where let's see where they measure up against the best in the NHL. And and what happens here? I think this is going to be a real nice game to see. I think you've got both having really good stories this year. And hopefully, for Edmonton's case, they can put it all together. But again, I reiterate, Boston is just complete. And they're going to be running all the way to the Eastern Conference Final. And I just believe that with everything I have. Edmonton looked really solid in a game against Buffalo earlier this week after a, a pretty wacky game on the weekend against the Winnipeg Jets. So the uh, herky-jerky Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, continues for the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, Brock, one more game I want to put on the radar. Uh, the Vegas Golden Knights and the Tampa Bay Lightning going after it tonight. Two teams that... Uh, I think to call them Stanley Cup favorites would be a stretch, but at the start of the year, people would have said these were two teams destined for a deep playoff run. So that's another game to think about tonight if you're looking for uh, some non-Edmonton or Boston hockey to take in. Tampa and Vegas, uh, a good one with a couple of uh, really high-skilled rosters. Yeah, and I'm starting to get over my, you know, Vegas Golden Knights being an expansion team and how could they be this good so so soon. I've actually jumped on the bandwagon of, like, this is kind of fun to see, you know, expansion teams uh, be right in there. And I go with Seattle as well. They're they're right in there. They're in the playoffs. This is all good. I think some portions would say, you know, expansion teams should suck for years and years and years. But <laughs> yeah, that worked uh, out. That worked out really well for the Atlanta Thrashers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, this, these are. This is another good matchup. This is the one that uh, I'll be tuning into tonight, uh, just because it's intriguing, and we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I like the Vegas Golden Knights, and I hope they go far uh, in the West uh, this year. Very good, Brock. Have a great day. We'll do a week. Weekend look ahead tomorrow. Indeed, we will. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of the Neutral Zone at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of two degrees as we make our way across the country. You'll see a lot of similarities in snow watches. So in Charlottetown PEI, it is mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. It will become a mix of sun and clouds later this afternoon, but there is also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is also two degrees, but there is a wind chill in Charlottetown that makes it feel like nine degrees, minus nine degrees, sorry. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. It will become a mix of sun and clouds in the afternoon. And the high is 3 degrees, but feeling like minus 7. To Quebec City, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The high is 2 degrees with a wind chill minus 6. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later. It's also a high of 2 degrees and feeling like minus 6 as well. To Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it is sunny with a high of 0 degrees but a wind chill that makes it feel like minus 16. To Brandon, Manitoba, where it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today, the high is minus eight, feeling like minus 25. Over to Regina, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy. The chance of snow is there as well. The high is minus 12, and it's feeling like minus 30. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow. The high is minus eight, with a wind chill of minus 25. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's light snow this morning and then it'll be a mix of sun and clouds with the possibility of some more snow in the afternoon. The high is minus nine, feeling like minus 25. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it is cloudy with snow starting this morning and up to four centimeters is expected to fall. The high is minus 10, but with the wind chill, it's more like minus 32 and there is a, frost, a risk of frostbite in those conditions. 
In Kelowna, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow in the morning. It will clear up later in the day. The highest five degrees feeling like minus six. And finally, over to Vancouver, BC, where it's a quite a pleasant day. It's a mix of sun and clouds today and a high of nine degrees. And that's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Oh, Vancouver in March is always pleasant. Coming up next, the pleasantness continues when Stephen Scott stops by to recap the Microsoft Ability Summit. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Microsoft's annual Ability Summit took place yesterday. Stephen Scott of Double Tap has some observations from the event. Hey, good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Stephen, we've talked about this Ability Summit pretty much every time it happens. What's your big takeaway, your big impression from this year? Well, you know, interestingly, this year, I was kind of expecting them to talk about hardware because last year we learned all about the new adaptive accessories that came out. And they were really interesting new devices that could help people with specific physical disabilities, physical disabilities, be able to navigate their computer. You know, for example, people who struggle to use a mouse or use a keyboard appropriately, there mm. are other ways to do that now with these Microsoft adaptive accessories. Well, they did continue that theme a little bit. They did add some new hardware. Uh, they've actually taken the Surface Pen, which I'll be honest, I never use because <laughs> I'm a blind guy. What do I need a pen for? But, you know, it's a computer or a Braille display somewhere nearby. But, you know, for people who do use pens, in particular pens with their touch device, and I'll be honest, this is mainly aimed at the education market, obviously, uh, for low vision kids or for anyone who has a physical impairment who's unable to hold the pen traditionally, They've developed these little accessories, these little 3D printed accessories that can go and wrap around the pen to make it easier to hold in whatever way suits the individual. What they're trying to do here really is create you know, hardware that can be as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. And you know, the adaptive accessories like the adaptive mouse, which allows you to shape the mouse to suit you, and even the keyboard accessories that allow you to press physical buttons um, in a much more easier way, or even navigate buttons differently, either by press or even by joystick. Mm. Um, you know, it's really improved the way to for people to, you know, for, with physical disabilities to be able to use this type of technology, T traditional stuff that we would take for granted. Yeah. So, Stephen, along those lines, I wouldn't necessarily call that groundbreaking. I, I doubt you would call no. that groundbreaking either. But how important is it that we always recognize that? tweaks are going to happen, that not everything in the tech world needs to be explosive revolutionary. Sometimes you're just going to get small improvements. Well, I think there's two sides to this. I think one is Microsoft are cutting back as like a lot of companies are at the moment. They're not spending as much money at the moment. Uh, so this is one area where we're seeing, I think, incremental improvements. However, I also think on the other side of that, Microsoft has done an incredible job, I think in particular for blind people, making their technology more accessible. And I think for other disabilities, they're catching up a little bit on that. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing improvements for people with physical impairments, hearing impairments, and those kind of things. So I think that's really good. We're seeing improvement across the board, mm. albeit incremental. But like you said, evolution sometimes is better than revolution. And the pace we work at and the pace these companies work at, any improvement is good, frankly. The, f the thing that gets me about this event every year is that they really show commitment to accessibility. I mean, the fact that Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is there at the top of the event and he talks about his commitment and the importance that disabled people play. And that's an important point. Disabled people play in the investment and the involvement in the creation of these products and services. Is, is incredible in itself. You know, I'd like to see that more from Tim Cook. I'd like to see that more from the Google CEO. Yeah. I'd like to see that from other places. I love the fact that Microsoft are committed, but not just in words, 
in actions. Yeah. It, again, when the CEO shows up, when the president shows up, that, that's an ally that says, hey, I'm here. I'm present. I want to be here. I want to learn. I want to reveal. It, it speaks to priority. Even if some folks might say it's performative, it, it, it still says they made time to say, I am going to do this performance, which some CEOs just aren't doing. Well, it is, it is performative. But again, they back it up with actions. I think that's the difference. You know, you yeah. might say the same about any organization that brings forward its CEO and says, you know, here's a CEO who's talking about the importance of disability in their company, but then that's it. You know, it's a bit like you were talking earlier with Brock around the whole subject of International Women's Day and tokenism. It can feel very much like that to disabled people. But, you know, I think Microsoft in this case have actually gone further and they've said, look, we are, we're following this up with an actual day of events and actions to follow, which is really interesting. I want to mention artificial intelligence, Dave. Yes, yes, honestly, yes, absolutely. I, I was, I was, I was going to lead you there. I was going to lead you there, Stephen, because I was going to set this up by saying artificial intelligence and AI has been um, almost nauseatingly overpresent in a lot of tech conversations yeah. recently. So I'm curious what the scale of AI uh, conversation was yesterday. Well, this was the bit that got me because I was kind of expecting to learn about how this AI, this chatbot type AI is going to work for disabled people. And actually what was talked about, which I thought was far more interesting, was what's called responsible AI. So building into all of the knowledge in the artificial intelligence, the brain essentially, that is the AI, bringing into that responsibility to include disability. So for example, they had a slide up where they showed the uh, Bing search engine being used to search for wheelchair accessible restaurants in Washington. So that was used as an example, and they put that into Bing, the search engine, and it came back with a very nice wrap, wrapped up answer, basically saying, yes, there are you know 10 or 14 restaurants that are probably more than that, in fairness. I don't know much about Washington, but you know from what I caught from the message, you know 10 or 14 restaurants that are wheelchair accessible, and also they have, you know, disabled facilities, they have X, Y, Z in terms of, you know, you can enter this way, this is how you would find it. So the detail was there, and I think that's the kind of the demonstration that Microsoft are keen to do through their work in this area to show that not only is it something that we can use as a tool for productivity, but actually it's something that we can be included in the results of mm. as well, which is equally as important, I think. Stephen, a little birdie told me that you have a bee in your bonnet today on Double Tap Daily. Don't give away all the secret sauce here, but what mm. is uh, grinding your gears going into today's episode at noon Eastern? I think people who listen to the show every day will know that it could be anything. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, it's pizza today that kicks it all off. Pizza. Eating pizza and tweeting. Apparently, Dave, uh, according to one of my listeners, is enough to get me fired from AMI. Really? I am going, in, going into lots of detail on this oh, show today. See, that, see, that's the perfect tease right there. You've literally uh, teased our taste buds, Stephen. And now we have to tune in at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio for another episode of Double Tap. Stephen, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend and enjoy uh, venting a little bit on air. A little bit? Thank you, Dave. That's very kind of you. Uh, <laughs> have a great day and a great weekend. That's Stephen Scott, one of the hosts of Double Tap, which you can find daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can find the team on Twitter, where maybe they're getting fired for eating pizza, at Double Tap on air, at Double Tap on air. Speaking of AMI-audio programming, today, Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, The Pulse with Joita Gupta hits the airwaves. Joita will speak with Jessica Miner, the Director of Programs and Assessment at Accessibility Indiana. They'll talk about parenting and disability. That's The Pulse, Thursdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio, then available on your favorite podcasting platform, including YouTube. Coming up next, it's Roundtable Time with Alex. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Nazreen Abdel-Majid and Ramya Anuthan are standing by. But Alex Smythe, there's lots of news stories popping up this week about the four-day work week. Yeah, you know, a lot of trials, a lot of places, different towns, uh, pro uh, like different uh, places around the world are really starting to adopt it or if they were involved in these trials. 
they're, they're sticking with the uh, adoption of the four-day work week. So I wanted to kind of open up the conversation and find out, you know, from our roundtable, like, how would you feel if that option was available for you? Would you try to take that four-day work week? So, I mean, that's kind I mean, of a Captain Obvious question, Alex. I'm curious well, who's going to yes fight no, with you about I mean, this one. Yes, but I mean, it, it's not like, oh, you just work the same uh, the same hours you do now. You you have to work longer hours the other three days to make up for that time. So, Nisreen, let, let's, uh, we've already kind of heard from, from Dave. Let's hear from you. What What's your thoughts on the four-day work week? Would you take it if you could? I would take it. I would be so happy with a four-day week. I think, yeah, we would have more work, more hours. But that extra day is, is a bonus. So I, don't, I wouldn't mind working more hours just for four days and then having that day off the fifth. Ramya? I struggle. I struggle because at first uh, impression, I want to say yes, of course, I want that bonus day off. But getting me to work an extra hour, hour and a half every day uh, does seem like a problem. So, okay, so I'm going to stay right with you there, Ramya. Why? It just it, it's longer days like it's absolutely longer days how are we going to work in breaks you know for the standard eight hour day uh we have rules i guess notions on when to take breaks how big your or long your lunch is that kind of thing but now your day is let's say 10 hours right like let's just go for the long long day um how are they going to work all this stuff in and do we also get to choose which day of the week we're taking off does it have to be a friday does it have to be a monday can i take my wednesday off uh it feels yeah. like it could be a bit of a challenge i i so i, I think that if you consider the nature of our industry we would have to be one of the last places to move yeah. to a four-day work mm -hmm. week. That basically the rest of society would have to move to a four-day work week before broadcasting could move to a four-day work week. Because part of what we do is supposed to be keeping people informed of the day-to-day, -day, of day-to-day -day operations, doing news reports, weather reports, etc. If you think about conventional radio and TV, uh, weather and traffic reports, they're, you're doing that for people essentially while they're going to or from work. It's about creating and setting an agenda and analyzing the world around people. So it just would not be viable for our industry to move to the four-day work week first. However, I mean, the answer is yes, obviously. If I could have a day off in the middle of the week, I would absolutely mm -hmm. take it. Like, if I could have Wednesdays off as my laundry and errand day, I would 100% do it. Alex, I'm sorry, I boxed you out a little bit. I want to get your take on this, both like your, your desire for it, but also the viability of it. Yeah, so obviously I, I would love to, to have an extra day uh, to to not work and, and have it to myself. And I, I don't think it's as impossible or improbable as you think. I mean, even if you look at it from the, uh, the context of now with Dave Brown. Well, let's say Friday, for example, became our, our, our flex day, our day off. We could still bring content to the audiences on that day we could have uh, shoot uh, shot things beforehand we could have interviews lined up we could have things pre-recorded and packaged on a friday show or Ugh, sounds like sounds like more work it sounds harder yeah but that's you're already working more hours anyways that's the that's the trade-off of it so see nizreen would do it i i i'm hearing some consensus i know it's it's split this uh this round table that's why i wanted to d uh, dive into this issue even though dave you thought this was going to be consensus. I, I think that there is workarounds for it. I, I just think there has to be a complete buy-in from the company. The other option could be you you rotate. So let's say, Dave, you got four four days that you work, but there's one day you have off and someone, I, I have to fill in for you or someone yeah, else has yeah, to Yeah, yeah, we, we, we mm. did that a couple summers ago on the show, mm -hmm. and it was really nice every two Fridays to have a Friday off, but the Friday where yeah. you did work was brutality because the musical chairs made it impossible to know who was working, where, and when. Yeah. I, but Alex, Alex, like we do have consensus here. Everybody here advocates for the four-day work week. The fact is the academic evidence suggests that a four-day work week makes more sense. But what a lot of academics have pointed to is you still want to keep five-day structures in place and allow employees yep. the flexibility of taking the Tuesday or the Thursday or the Friday or the Monday, whatever suits their needs via coordination. But but if if anything, guys, I would actually be someone who advocates that we need like more hours and more openness and more availability of services. Um, I'm someone who would actually love to move towards more of a seven day, like 
openness schedule, not an individual seven day work week, but saying that like government services, for example, would be available for me to go for an appointment on the weekend. Like, like, like Alex, I'm taking your premise and I'm agreeing with it from a functionality point of view, but I also am someone who would think that we actually need to be making it easier for people to get to things and get to appointments and do things. Like, I think we need to broaden the way that people are accessing services rather than simply saying, we're going to cram everything into long four days a week. Yeah, but also, too, let's say, you know, the government services do stay open five days a week and employees have seven days, days a week. I want broken. seven days a week, Alex. I, I, I demand seven. seven days, but I'm trying I'm trying to create a more a viable option within the current framework. You have employees at the different government services working four days a week. If everyone else has four day work week, they have one weekday that would be off, then you could use that as your uh, possible day to access services that, you know, during the other days would already be difficult to access. So you would still have the availability on that Friday, that Wednesday, that Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, whatever day that you took off. Nazreen, what would you do with your extra day off? I would chill. I would. I mean, I say that I would. Honestly, I I, I say that I want to binge watch a show, chill, you know, stay inside. But I feel like I would still make that time to work and book a gig or some sort of thing. Yes, yeah, so you'd That's side hustle. I... You'd side hustle on <laughs> your yeah. day off. I would yeah. side hustle, honestly. <laughs> Nizreen always grinding. Uh, Nizreen, what day would you pick? What day during the week? Monday. Okay, so you're going for the long weekend I feel like Mondays for work thing. is just dreadful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah long weekend thing uh, makes sense to me. Uh, Alex, what would you do with your extra day off, and what day would you pick? Yeah, so kind of like Nisreen, I think I would do the day off as the relaxation day. Because typically on the weekend, everyone's off. You're, you're typically running around doing lots of stuff. I like having a day to myself, so I would make that the day and originally I was thinking Friday but I think now as Nisreen mentioned it Monday has a lot of pros to it so I may shift my vote from suffer through Friday and take the Monday off. So my instinct is to take Monday because I have to work on Sundays for some elements of the Monday show. So by taking Monday off, I would no longer have to work on Sundays. So I'd get two days off by taking Monday off. But uh, let's be clear, a Wednesday off in the middle of the week is delightful. Mm -hmm. Imagine working mm -hmm. for two days, taking a day off, working for two more days, and then getting two days off. Come on now, Wednesday's the way it's at. Break your week up right in the middle for a mental health break, right smack dab yes. in the middle. Uh, Ramya, what would you do with your day off? I mean, I would do laundry. What would you do with your day off? And what day do you want? I want to do laundry on this extra day off. No, I uh, it would have I to be a I sweat a lot. I have to do analysis. a lot of laundry. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I would not tell, like, I can't pick one specific day. It would have to be a week by week analysis because if I could take a midweek, like a Wednesday off, that would be the day I do errands. If I took the Friday off, that'd be a chill day. If I took the Monday off, that'd be, you know, an extra long weekend. Uh, you know what I mean? It's nice to have the flexibility. Yeah, okay, I feel you. All right, let's, let's wrap up on this thought here. Ramya, starting with you, what do you think the odds are we eventually get to a widespread four-day work week in North American society? Yeah, see, that's the the problem. I don't think everyone's going to adapt or adopt this um, because it's just not feasible for all industries everywhere all across North America. I'm thinking a place like Toronto could get away with doing it for most of us pretty soon. Uh, Nazreen, what do you think the odds are that we'll actually see a widespread adoption of the four-day work week in North America? Yeah, I agree. I don't think everybody's going to adapt to it as well. So I think it's going to be low odds. Alex, I'm curious if you have some optimism here. Yeah, I, I do, actually. I think this is going to be something that is going to grow. I think it's going to start on a government uh, level, something that is more on the public facing, and then you'll start to see other uh, private industries, private companies really start to adopt it, and it will become a selling feature. So people will want to work at these industries, and then it will become a way to recruit more employees so i think it's going to happen and i i think in the next five years you're going to see it far more commonplace than you would imagine yeah i you know i've got a little more optimism than nisreen and ramya despite some of the skepticism that i've expressed in this segment but i'll also tell you what's going to happen there's going to be some companies that are going to adopt this four-day work week as a way to try and bring in better employees but let's just say the financial sector for example banks say yeah we're moving to the four-day work week and then there's going to be one bank that says, we're going the other way. 
we want to make it easier for you to do business with us. I'm not going to name the major bank, but there's one of them that stays open for parts of the day on Saturday to make it easier mm -hmm. for clients to get through. Mm -hmm. There becomes a competitive business advantage if the world makes themselves less available to their customers and, you know, the people that actually pay the bills and keep the lights on. So that's the one thing that, that, I, that I want to mention here, that I, I'm all for work-life balance. I'm all for employee rights. But at the end of the day, someone's going to figure out the advantage of saying, you know what, that Now with Dave Brown show is taped on Friday, we're going to go live and we're going to blow them out of the water on the ratings front. So there's always going to be some unintended consequences. Alex, thank you for this. Nazreen, thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet. I'm extending your workday by a minute or two here as you tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Sure. We're talking about bringing blind narrators into the audio description world for Ooh. narration. So, yeah, it, we're wondering basically if this is making the um, process feel better, more equitable, and all of these things are yes, 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 in my opinion. But Fern Lullum's going to dig a little deeper into that. She joins us from the UK. Marcus McCracken, he's joining us monthly oh, for the time being name. to talk. I know. And he's talking accessible gaming. He's a blind gamer himself. And we're specifically talking consoles because he's got experience in um, uh, multiple gaming universes. Plus, we have our weekly roundtable. And Jim Crisco is back with us. He's, of course, our content development specialist oh, in Edmonton. Oh, Jimmy Crisco getting the grilling from Kelly and Rums. I love it. Rumya, have a great day. Thank you. You too. That is Ramya Amethan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, which comes your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv and AMI-audio. Coming your way next is a preview of McLean's magazine. Don Dickinson will stop by with a couple of articles, including one about the Bay de Noor oil mega project in Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's just say it's uh, making some waves. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The McLean's Magazine Reading Show airs Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the content curator of that show, and Don has a couple articles to preview. Hey, good morning, Don. Sunny morning here. Oh, wow. yeah, it is sunny, but still a little chilly. Still a little chilly in mm, Toronto, yeah. but, uh, but we live. We're getting, we're getting through it. It's uh, been a, actually kind of a bone-chilling week. I, I, I think finally <laughs> I'm a soft Torontonian. I'm feeling the winter as it uh, stretches on. Uh, Don, speaking of the winter, a little bit colder up there in Newfoundland. The Bay de Noor offshore oil mega project is making some waves in Newfoundland and Labrador. Proponents say it's the future of Canadian energy. Critics say... It's a betrayal. Don, mega project implies big. How much oil could be extracted? Well, Dave, this is big. I, I, I was completely blown away by this article. Talk about a learning experience. The Flemish Pass is the deep basin carved into the ocean floor 500 kilometers into the North Atlantic. There is at least 500 million barrels of recoverable oil still uh, First discovered in 2013 by the Norwegian oil and gas firm Equinor. Today, the company plans to open this inhospitable seascape to the most ambitious offshore oil undertaking in Canadian history. So, Don, when you talk about the pure volume of oil, I think this is implied. But why is this project considered so vital to Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, as we all know, uh, good Canadians that we are, that Newfoundland's had its very, very tough times. Um, and uh, there are a few places in Canada, actually, where the economic dependence is more um, acute than uh, uh, in, on the natural world than in uh, Newfoundland. Um, so they're surrounded by sea. Uh, this is a place where many of the mainstays of the 21st century economies have been very slow to take root. So in a world increasingly moving toward, towards decarbonization, Newfoundland is going in exactly the opposite direction, beating a path towards oil. Mm. So you can't really blame them, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a resource that they have, it, and it's a resource that's going to bring uh, the province a great deal of wealth. Any kind of energy project is going to encounter opposition for good reason. 
Who is opposing the project? Yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> it's oil, Dave. So um, obviously, they're going to have their, uh, you know, opponents, um, including environmental activists and indigenous communities, who've spent many, many years fighting the project. The future is. Um, Exactly the point, according to them, Ian Mirren is a lawyer with the environmental group, group Eco Justice, and they have been lobbying against uh, Beta Nord. Our federal, this is a quote, our federal government says that it, it understands climate science, yet it should understand that Canada can't be a climate leader and approve fossil fuel infrastructure projects of this size. So there we go. There's always going to be detractors. Um, and basically, there's two sides to the story, Dave. I mean, it's it's not clear cut, but yeah, it, the resource is there. Don, if you'll allow me, um, I talk a lot about energy policy on this show, and I believe it's very difficult to develop a moderate energy policy. It's it's very difficult the way in which Canada has become dependent on fossil fuels and energy production as a key driver of the economy. But it is worth noting a couple of news stories that can offer you context here from across the country. Right now, Newfoundland and Labrador is still dealing with a, boon, a billion dollar boondoggle with the Muskrat Falls hydroelectricity project, um, still failing to produce the energy needed that was part of that development. At the same time, the governments of Newfoundland and Labrador expressed a lot of concerns about some money they gave to energy companies before the pandemic. Were the energy companies still up up, up and left during the pandemic and said, you know what, oil's not not um, not trading at a high enough uh, price, so we're just going to abandon this project and uh, ha thank you for the government money, we'll be on our way. At the same time, there's a study out of British Columbia right now with three different coal mines saying a lot of the economic impacts are overestimated during the process of environmental review as a way of trying to sell these projects to people. And at the same time, a couple energy companies in Alberta are not paying their taxes to rural municipalities. So Don, when, when you say there's two sides to the story, I 100% agree with you and I 100% agree that energy policy is a complex one to crack, but I'm always leery anytime an article pops up in mainstream media or mass media saying this is all about the economy it's going to be great for you when all these companies cut and run whenever they feel like it well obviously dave you've done your homework goodness uh, yeah I, I mean i agree there should be it should be some sort of safeguards there uh you know if the government's going to be giving away hard-earned money to companies to develop these uh, uh industries uh, we should have some return. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a given, right? Uh, do we not have a kind of like a collection agency there that we yeah. can send after these folks, you know? $268 million in unpaid taxes to Alberta municipalities by various Oof. energy companies. That That's like, that's not nothing. That is not, that is not nothing. Uh, Don, let's uh, get away from here because I think uh, people on both sides of that argument are going to be mad at me. So we'll just move on <laughs> to the non-controversial world of artificial intelligence and Canadian AI startups. Moving over to technology, there's lots of chatter about chat GPT and other forms of AI and Canadian startups have their own hopes in this space. Don, this article features a lot of thoughts from Martin Kahn. Who is Martin Kahn? Uh, well, this is a, a really good interview that's uh, from uh, McLean's by Katie Underwood. And Martin Kahn is fresh off a stint as YouTube's chief financial officer, Ooh. where he and his team, yeah, uh, we're talking big time here, where he and his team launched the platform TikTok-esque video shorts. The Ontario-bred tech exec hopped back over the border and became president and COO of the mega-successful three-year-old AI startup Cohere, based in in Toronto. Good for us. Its mandate is to commercialize better human computer conversations. And I heard you talking earlier on your show about AI and chatbot and all that. And it's a fascinating, fascinating mm -hmm. field. Uh, Don, another acronym to unpack here. What is NLP? Okay. Well, the company Cohere recently, um, uh, uh, they it, what it what it is is it's natural lang it's very pro uh, um complicated but it's natural language processing is, oh, yes. is what the what what it stands for that's um, the underpinning and, that's um, the that's the underpinning of things like chat gpt 
Yeah, exactly. Um, the branch of AI that actually teaches computers to digest and produce speech and text with the sophistication of human beings. Uh, as everyday uh, web surfers use NLP-based tools like ChatGPT to produce things like college essays, um, the founder of the company of Cohere is hoping to revolutionize the way the world does business. Mm. So it's a language. It's based around language. So Don, coming back to one of the core cruxes of this article is discussing the prospect for Canadian companies to jump into the AI world. What is it that makes Canada a particularly fertile market for AI development? Well, surprisingly, I didn't know any of this, uh, Toronto has taken a leadership role in some of the emerging machine learning and AI technologies. Um, uh, Khan says that a lot of them are coming through the University of Toronto and Computer Sciences. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who is um, who is the go-to AI luminary in the field. Good for us again. Yeah, eh? no kidding. <laughs> Some of the political developments in the U.S. and the U.K. within the last uh, few years have also probably helped people see Canada as an attractive place to be. So he's saying that, you know, we have the talent here and uh, we have the uh, research here. And, um, yeah, this is the place it's, it's going to happen. Don, there's only about 45 seconds on the clock here, but we hear this quite frequently about Canada is going to be a tech hub. So Western, Western Ottawa pops up as a tech hub for about 10 years and then goes away. Oh, BlackBerry's going to revolutionize KW. And then Research in Motion goes belly up. So Don, it feels a little bit like a conversation with the ebbs and flows in the tech sector. Canada always seems to want in, but we can never seem to build that sustainable model. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you have to give it to BlackBerry. I mean, it was it had a hell of a long run. Yeah, it sure really, did. But yeah, it's it's not like they were fly by night, Dave. You yeah, know? neither was Nortel. Uh, neither was Nortel. But uh, yeah, as Emerson, and a lot of money was made. Yeah, as Emerson said, uh, families are always rising and falling in America. To sort of uh, paraphrase that to uh, tech companies, Don. Before I start quoting more American literature, we better call it a day. Have a great day. <laughs> Okay, Dave, thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's Don Dickinson, the content curator of AMI-audio's reading program, McLean's Magazine. You can find it Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. That's all the time we have for the show today. Don't you worry, we're back again tomorrow. Michael McNeely has a preview with predictions for the 2023 Oscars. That's now with Dave Brown. Until then, I'm Dave Brown, reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.